Hello, and welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. My name is Paul Tunner, and I'm the founder of Pharma Forum. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Baxter, CEO of VBI Vaccines, and Lee Torman, Executive Vice President, Full Service Commercial at Cineos Health. Today, we'll be talking about some of the unique development and commercialization challenges in the world of preventative vaccines, as well as discussing the partnership between VBI and Cineos as an example of the kind of agile collaboration that can really help in today's complex landscape. Today's episode is produced in partnership with Cineos Health. So let's start with a bit of uh, background on yourselves, gentlemen, you know, your, your former careers, your current roles. And Jeff, perhaps you'd like to go first. Sure. So uh, Jeff Baxter, CEO, President, CEO of VBI Vaccines. Way back when, a finance and economics graduate, worked for Unilever, uh, and then found my way uh, to work for a tiny UK pharma company called Glaxo, which then became Glaxo Welcome, which then became Glaxo Smith Kline. Uh, so uh, in uh, 18 years, I did 13 jobs across almost every function, commercial R&D, uh, corporate development, etc. cetera. Uh, left, uh, became a family managing partner in a venture capital firm called The Column Group. Uh, I stayed for the first fund, uh, so I was there for about four years. Once that was uh, fully committed, I realized that whilst I really enjoyed the world of investments, uh, I actually, my passion was for running things. So uh, I then joined VBI, uh, and I've now been the president CEO of VBI for 12, 13 years. Fantastic. So great career spanning big pharma right through to the biotech side. And Lee, what about yourself? Tell me a bit more about your background and current role. Yeah, sure. Current role is uh, Executive Vice President uh, of Full Service Commercial and Cineos One um, at the Cineos Health, really responsible for uh, how we build partnerships with our clients and bring a lot of the capabilities of Senator Cineos Health together in, in a sort of unified way. In terms of background, been in the industry for a couple of decades, uh, kind of spanning, I would say, a lot of different things. I started off my career loading trucks in warehouses. So I came out of undergrad with a, a supply chain logistics background, got involved in product launches by uh, waiting for the FDA to approve things like so load trucks and send them off <laughs> to various wholesalers and distributors. Along the way, got interested in how things actually got into those boxes and, and uh, went and uh, got my MBA, joined Price, PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, in the consulting uh, business, had done an internship at J&J. I was, uh, ironically, ended up uh, consulting to the same product that I was supporting in my internships have been involved in the industry ever since uh, in the services and on the on the manufacturer side. So been uh, the chief strategy officer of, on the manufacturer side, done a lot of strategy and operations consulting uh, along the way at uh, IBM, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and uh, joined Cineos Health about uh, five years ago. And and uh, at the time, uh, this uh, full service commercial and Cineos One concept was really a merger thesis. Uh, and, and now it's, it's really an ongoing business and it's been exciting kind of to, to be here from the ground, uh, literally from a whiteboard on to, uh, to a going concern. So pretty, uh, pretty happy to, uh, to be working with folks like Jeff as we've done this along the way. So we're pretty excited for our conversation. Fantastic. And we're, we're obviously going to talk today about your collaboration, but I never would have guessed your career started with loading trucks. What a, what a great story. Um, before Good we story. there. <laughs> Exactly. Before we dive into the collaboration, Jeff, I just want to come back to you because, you know, obviously the focus of VBI is on vaccines, but specifically, you know, HBV and glioblastoma as the lead indications. 
Why those areas? Why the passion for those? Well, I think uh, the reason that we're in this industry, whether it's big pharma, you know, big biotech, small biotech, or in fact, you know, Insinius, is you know to focus on significant unmet medical needs. And I knew that I know that's an often overused line by biotech and pharma CEOs, but I really do think, given the overall probabilities of success through the R and D and pipeline development process, that you have to have a fundamental belief uh, in making the world a healthier place if you're going to be in our in our business. As you say, our focus is on hepatitis B and glioblastoma, both being very significant unmet medical needs. So the WHO estimate that there's nearly 300 million people, 296 people, so that's million people in the world chronically infected with HPV. There's over a million deaths annually across the globe from hepatitis and related uh, comorbidities, such as cirrhosis, chronic viral hepatitis B. And hepatitis B is known as the silent killer because a lot of people get infected with hepatitis B in childhood, in adolescent years, when they go to college. It's known as a silent killer, though, because people don't actually really see the symptoms manifest physically, usually until they're in their early 40s or their 50s. In fact, the WHO estimate that only 10% of that nearly 300 million people that are chronically infected across the globe are actually aware they're infected with hepatitis B. So if they're at college, if they're adolescents, if they're in their 20s and 30s and living a normal life, there's a high degree of that potential for hepatitis B to be spread. In fact, hepatitis B is 100 times more infectious than HIV. So, you know, our belief is that the way to prevent hepatitis B infection is clearly prophylactic vaccination. And whilst for some time now, the last 20 or so years, a first dose of hepatitis B vaccination given to children when they were born. But again, the WHO estimate that only 40% of newborn children receive that first dose. So it's a significant opportunity to improve vaccination rates and protect people from that initial infection. Further, the world of a functional cure of hepatitis B, there's no cure at the moment for hepatitis B. So if you get hepatitis B, 40s, 50s, you start showing some liver function degradation. That can lead to cirrhosis, liver cancer, dialysis, etc. And so we believe with our therapeutic, which is currently in a phase 2B study in China, where there's 200 million chronically infected people, but the sort of the scientific world is now moving to realise the concept of a functional cure. So we're focused on both sides of the hepatitis B fight, both the prevention and the potential for cure. It really is a very significant public health burden and, of course, personal and family burden upon those chronically infected. Secondly, glioblastoma. Now, glioblastoma, most common form of brain cancer, is the most fatal form of cancer. There is no current standard of care for glioblastoma. And when you think that the optimum helmet in the primary setting, first diagnosis, got approved on basically a four to six months extension in overall survival, it just shows you how desperate that neuro-oncologists are for new ways to treat glioblastoma. Now, we have an immunotherapeutic VBI-1901, which has been very successful in encouraging phase one and phase two studies, shows that we can double median overall survival rates in a phase one, phase two, a study in recurrent glioblastoma. 
So we're now going into a phase 2B study, which is going to be randomised uh, controlled study, potentially under our fast track designation, take that forward for accelerated approval. And also we'll be starting the study at the end of this year in the primary setting. So these two terrible, terrible kind of diseases, one probably prior, obviously, to COVID-19 pandemic, one of the most contagious and one of the most fatal and widespread of the common viruses in the population, hepatitis B. So we have a prophylactic and a therapeutic. And then secondarily, we have uh, this glioblastoma immunotherapeutic, uh, which we're really excited about, as are the FDA and neurooncologists, about the outcome of this phase 2B randomised control study. Thank you, Jeff. And I thought it was important just to sort of set the scene there, because as you've outlined, two really important areas with potential to, to shift the needle enormously, but perhaps not always kind of top of the list of areas that people think about as, as you know needing urgent new treatment. So I definitely wish you best of luck with the continued trials there. But let's come back to kind of how you're you're collaborating at the moment. I know you've both been working together for a few years now. And you know, what I heard from you in, in preparing for this was it's a kind of very, if I can say, non-traditional service provider to biopharma client relationship. And I'd love to hear a bit more about how you work together, why that is. So, um, Lee, perhaps you'd like to comment on that first and take us back to the start of this journey. Yeah, and I think it was 2019, uh, Jeff, uh, when, when we really started working together. And I, I think it actually began with an initial consulting project where we were looking at you know options around strategies to go to market. I think that was very focused in the medical affairs domain uh, early on, which, which would make sense at that point in time. And I think where uh, we had been as an organization, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, kind of moving toward this different kind of partnership model where we bring the capabilities of the company together in a different way, it's really focused around what the needs of the of merging biopharma company is, right? And, and, and how do we meet those needs in a non-traditional way? So traditionally, you would just sell a a consulting project and do it and move on and, and hope that maybe there's another one after. But really, we're unique in the sense that we have agency capabilities and field deployment capabilities. And we have a lot of people who are from the industry, non-services backgrounds that, that, that do that. So how do we meet BBI where they are with what they with what they need and, and, and have a broader relationship perhaps where we can uh, you know help them in a in a more meaningful way than just a single single solution service provider. And I think there was a a desire from, from BBI to, to perhaps think about the path market in a different way as well. And, and you know, look for single service providers, look for a more externalized model than just the in-house build model. And I think there's always been this, uh, as you take things to market, it was called binary choice of license the product away or build everything yourself in-house. And, and, and ultimately what we've been seeking to do and have been able to do is create an alternative to that, a middle ground, if you will, where you retain the asset, chain the strategic decision-making and the optionality associated with what you do with that asset going forward, but you build toward a commercialization program, uh, really allowing you to focus in strategic areas that you choose uh, as, as a customer. And BBI is very focused on the sciences, as you just heard Jeff talk about, sort of meeting unmet needs through the science itself. So I think that's where we met. We met uh, along the way. We had a, an ability to deliver um, a, a different kind of partnership model uh, that very much met where EBI was looking to go, and, and it's it's grown from there. And I think it's evolved over time, and, and hopefully will continue 
do so. But I think it's it, it shows that there's another way to do this, I think, um, in the marketplace, which is, I think, something that uh, coming out of COVID, people are looking for a way, a way to maybe getting things done in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, Jeff, from your perspective, we, we talked at the start about your experience of big pharma through to biotech. You've seen all these models. You probably were there considering how far can we take this ourselves? Do we out-license with big pharma? Do we look at the usual suspect service side and the models? Tell me from your experience, you know, how you came to this kind of partnership and what you see as being different to that. Yeah, it's interesting, Paul, because listening to Lee talk, we came at it completely the other direction because, uh, you know, through my 30 years of experience, you know, I've watched a couple of companies now, um, and it's funny, you know, retrospectively looking back, it, it doesn't seem like rocket science, but it was at the time, because, you know, early in my career at Blankso, we were used to using, you know, contract sales forces to implement, uh, to supplement launches or to support established products. Um, we worked with a whole host of marketing agencies, branding agencies, PR agencies. We worked with all of these companies, and it has been interesting over the last you know, five to six years or a decade, really, to see a couple of companies, you know, start to acquire all of these vertical pillars and start to put them together. And so, you know, when uh, when I was at Waxo uh, Smith Klein, we thought we had the most effective sales and marketing and, you know, field force in the world. And I'm sure Pfizer felt exactly the same. Um, but actually, it was interesting watching our very best people leave to join some of these vertical pillars, which were then being merged into a total commercialization model. So really, as we were getting pre-Hebrio, which is the prophylactic hepatitis B vaccine that we've launched in complete partnership with Sinius, as we thought about getting it to the finish line, exactly as Lisa, we started working in September 2019 with Sinius. And it was always with the view to assuming we were successful in the early steps and we would develop this completely sort of integrated commercialization model um, right up to, you know, commercialization uh, and launch. And that's kind of how it panned out. And I think, you know, the flip side of that for me was as a biotech CEO, in terms of how I can bring most value to patient needs and unmet medical needs is to focus on internally organically developing new assets through clinical development and potentially acquiring those assets. And, you know, you're never going to attract as a one product bag or even as a two product bag biotech company, the very best people in our industry. Sure. They want to work across multiple products. They want to switch in and out. They want to be involved in exciting launches and everything else. And so that is, as I said, I, I watched the very best people go to the likes of Sinius. And so, you know, for us, it was access to talent. It was, quite frankly, operational effectiveness and efficiency and, and delivery. And thirdly, it was at the time and even now, because of the pressure, workload, opportunity in our pipeline, I didn't want the distraction of, you know, having to hire 80 people, manage those people. Um, and, you know, Sinius, obviously, with tens of thousands of employees, have a very effective recruitment, talent identification process. Uh, and, you know, it's very much part of their operational excellence. So we could never compete with that. So it was really, you know, for me, you know, those sort of four factors, um, you know, best people, distraction, effectiveness, and, you know, the need to effectively launch this product and get it into as many patients as possible that drove me towards 
this kind of model. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And I mean, just, just on that point, Lee, to come back to you, I mean, I, I guess every client wants the kind of the best skills and the, the AP and all that kind of stuff. And you, you work with a range of different clients. So how's it for you different when you're working with a, you know, an emerging biotech like VBI versus some of the very big pharma companies? How do you structure the project differently? How do you approach it differently? Yeah, see, typically the, the large pharma companies operate just as Jeff was describing. They, they have specific needs uh, that they need to fill. Uh, they have the ability to do all of these things. They, they have the marketing, the market access, the, the medical affairs, all, all of those capabilities there. They're typically making uh, capital decisions around the deployment of capital to hiring new people or building out infrastructure or things like that, primarily geared toward key launch programs, right? So, and so we're supplementing them by bringing the, the right kind of talent that they want to, to do that. Increasingly, we are seeing some of those companies start to look at what we call non-core assets. So they have um, assets in their pipeline that are outside the therapeutic category that are sure. uh, uh, things that they typically might license or sell or shelf uh, along the way. They're now looking to externalize some of that broader way where they're not looking to do that. <clears throat> On the emerging biopharma side though, um, it's really interesting because they really, most of these companies have no infrastructure, right? Uh, they, they usually have one or two people that have a commercial background, heavily weighted toward the scientific clinical development side uh, of, of the process. Uh, and they, they have these needs to bring these products to bear. So they are really looking for acquisition of talent, as Jeff said, the, the very best people. Um, and, you know, we're able to tap into the relationship that we have with Big Pharma, for instance, and, and people that are very experienced there. Uh, it's it's actually somewhat of an attractive uh, talent pool for us. It's more attractive to that talent pool because they can work at Pfizer uh, or GSK, as have been mentioned on the call, or an emerging biopharma like BBI uh, or a really interesting launches wherever it is, and they're going to have this opportunity to move around. So we are able to attract people that um, you know maybe want some stability because uh, there are there is some instability in the emerging biopharma market. Products fail, companies fail. Along the way, that's the nature of the industry that we're in. And you, you have these periods of career disruption as you go from exactly. place to place. Uh, what, what you get with, with Cineos Health uh, time is the ability to, if the product fails, you can be redeployed into another interesting launch asset or over to a large pharma client as well. So I, I think it's a it's an it's a attractive value proposition for that talent base. Specifically, though, if there's a broad need, we can do that and build, I would call it a, a bespoke team around what that client actually needs. Um, everyone, everyone's different. Um, some people are very interested in uh, building a medical affairs organization or building an, an access organization around pricing or being a marketing organization down the road, but they may have less interest in some of those other domains. So we can really sit down and find out where that company is looking to acquire their own internal talent or where they're looking for us to do it and then build kind of a tailored solution around all of that. And said before, meet people where they are listen to the need and, and, and address the need. I think that's really what we try to do when we can attract that talent, we can bring it in. So that can be a very broad relationship where we can do a lot of things for someone or it can be very, very specific to specific areas that they're looking to do. The other part of it, it can evolve over time. So uh, point in time, 18 months from launch, you there's a lot of uncertainty still in terms of the commercial potential of the asset, the regulatory process is still uh, being played out at that point in time. Um, from a risk mitigation standpoint, it may make more sense for you to build that infrastructure with an outsource uh, 
relationship or a partnership yeah. model yeah, yeah. with us. And then as you get more certainty for regulatory approval and then you get established in the marketplace, revenue and, and profit is coming in from those products, that may make more sense for you to invest in some of that infrastructure internally at that point in time. Our model and the way we work with people recognizes that. We understand that as the relationship, the relationship needs to evolve as the company's strategy and position evolves over time as well. And, and so it's kind of an interplay between resources that the the customer wants to have in, in internally and versus ones that they want to have externally with us. And there's a little bit of a back and forth evolution to that over time. So it's a pretty attractive model. It gives you a, a good bit of flexibility, dynamic, dynamic changing over time as market conditions and strategic priorities change over time as well. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's a pretty good mix, I think. Yeah, and listening to both of you talk about the relationship, it, it sounds like the crux of it is really that risk mitigation. I guess, Jeff, from your perspective of not investing too far ahead of the curve where there's risk, but also as you've outlined, Lee, in terms of people being able to work with the biotechs, which is pretty cool, you know, these kind of areas, but not tied to one company. So balancing that risk mitigation with a bit of flexibility within the model as well. Is that is that a fair summary? So for me, Paul, I think there was certainly you know, a, a, an element of risk mitigation. But I think right from the outset, as Lisa, going back to those early sort of consulting projects that then led in their various work streams to sort of more an integrated vision that, and, and you know, internally, there was a real communication exercise and a, and a cultural challenge in the people in our MVBI, we are not outsourcing the commercialization. You need to understand that Sinius and VBI are inextricably linked. We are absolutely intertwined with each other. Um, and we are entirely motivated and invested in this kind of single vision and model of the successful launch and commercialization of Preheprio. And that was really, really important because, you know, in manufacturing and in R&D, we're used to outsourcing assays, we're used to outsourcing manufacturing to, to CDMA, blah, 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 blah. But it was a very pointed, you know, that we want you to do this, and here's the tangible output. For two and a half years, we worked with all of these groups across seniors, and, you know, it, there was not necessarily tangible output. So whilst there was a certain degree of risk mitigation, it was also very high risk, you know, because yeah. we were thinking about, you know, building, as Lee said, you know, the medical affairs function. And the chairman, Mike Ball, would say to you, Jeff, how do you, how do you know it's working? Show me something. It's like, well, I've met the people, I talked to the people, I trust the people. We haven't done anything yet. We don't have a key account structure yet set up. We don't have this, we don't have that. But you know, I have I have faith and trust in the collaborative and spirit of the partnership. And it kind of bore through. Um, it really did. Uh, and so, you know, for me, I think it was uh, that kind of agility, the flexibility, the way in which we change plans. Um, I can give you some examples of that. You know, the way, for example, we found our chief commercialization officer, John Dillman, who's now joined us in-house. But, you know, we and Sinius, you know, met John in the early days. He worked for two years with Sinius as our chief commercialization officer and a senior person within Lee's organization. Uh, and then, you know, by sort of mutual agreement, we bought John in-house just about the point we were launching a product in mid-2022. 
and now it's John's in-house. Now, I think that's a really good example of, you know, the nature of this relationship and how we are inextricably linked. I mean, I don't know that John feels he's doing anything different today that he was doing not doing four to six months ago, um, you know, apart from the fact that he's now kind of in-house, as it were. But, you know, it's a good example. Yeah, and it's good that you're still friends and, and talking, you know, despite something like that, because you've obviously found a win-win solution. But you would ask Paul, I think, in, in, the, in, the, in the prep around the difference between outsourcing and partnership. And I think Jeff just exactly. articulated it, right? It's in, the, in some of the relationships that we have with, you know, non-partnership clients, we'll call them, it is transactional at some level, right? There's a job to be done and, and you know, there's an order given and, and an execution to be done and, and it's a contract. And, and that's a fine relationship. That is that is the basis for the services industry, right? That there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's a lot of people are very happy with that. However, in, in, in the relationship that we have with BBI, it is a partnership. Um, and, and we work very much together to, to accomplish our, the goals that are set there is an ongoing dialogue. Neither of us sees this as a transactional relationship. You know, there are obviously transactions that occur between the companies, but that's, it's never been discussed that way. We don't refer to it that way. We, it is a partnership. Um, everything is done in the spirit of partnership and, I, and it, it is a multi-year relationship and it probably expected to be a multi-asset relationship. And I think one of the things that can, the, the, the mindset shifts when you're in that kind of of, of a relationship because you can make an investment in a person or in something and that can pay off down the road, right? You don't need it to pay off in, the, in a short-term timeframe or something like that. Yeah. We can take chances together on things and know that if they don't work out, that we'll respond to the chances together, those those challenges together and, yeah. and make it work. And, and that, that's just a different mindset. And you can behave and operate in a very different way. You bring different types of people and you can have someone like John who we hire uh, works for us for a period of time, goes over to, to Jeff's team, and, and we've continued to work together on a very regular basis. And, and it's very comfortable. Uh, people, it's, it, you, you could think that would be awkward. It's not at all awkward. Yeah. It's the same people working on the same goal with the same thing. And, you know, the, the paycheck coming from a different place, but the goal of the objectives and the spirit of partnership remains the same. And so you don't get that. Uh, unless you're in one of these partnership models and, and yeah. you really don't get the, the opportunity to sort of unlock the value associated with it unless you're willing to make that leap. And yeah. um, it's pretty special when, when you're able to do it that way. And I think there's a lot of value for us as a, as a services provider and, uh, you know, for Jeff and BBI team as a manufacturer to operate that way. It's, uh, it, I think each party gets more out of the relationship. And, and you're right. I mean, people talk about partnership a lot. It's a very overused word. But I mean, you can tell from the way that you describe how you work together and that flexibility that it is that genuine sense of one team and, and, and partnership. And I've got to ask you in terms of, you know, we obviously VBI is focused on, on vaccines and there's some nuances there versus um, other medicine development and commercialization, which are maybe worth touching. And I'd love to hear both of you just elaborate on, on what you see as different there and what specialized skills are needed. Jeff, maybe you'd like to comment on that first. Yeah, well, so, I mean, you know, our launch was was always going to be a challenge. You know, it's not like we're launching the first statin in the cardiovascular market. Equally, we're not launching the 15th or 18th statin, which I think right. there are now in the markets. But we're somewhere in between. You know, we are we are the fourth approved prophylactic hepatitis B vaccine in North America. And those other vaccines are a single antigen, the S protein, 
on the surface of a yeast-derived cell. Um, and, and Dynavax uses a next-generation adjuvant. We are completely different. We have uh, a virus-like particle that on the surface of the particle has all th three surface sanctions, the hepatitis B vaccine. Right. Now, from that brief bit of science, if you expand that to the value proposition in this product, it is actually a pretty scientific discussion. And so what we did was, you know, focusing with the seniors team in terms of the value proposition, the brand, brand proposition of this product, we recognized very early on that we were going to have to differentiate our product. So we have a branding called the power of three, i.e. the three antigens. And again, somewhat uniquely, we recruited a team of 15 MSLs in North America to start talking to key opinion leaders using the clinical data and the publications we had. Because if you were launching, I don't know, an asthma inhaler, you know, it's an asthma inhaler, you know, it's GSK versus AstraZeneca or something, you know, very, I mean, the clinical data is much more straightforward, you know, reduce exacerbations by 30%. This was more, you know, clinicians saying, well, if the vaccine didn't work, it wouldn't have been approved by the FDA. So why should we start switch from GSK's Andrew B, which is market share, to your vaccine pre-FBO? It's inherently a scientific debate. And that's why we put the MSLs into the field to start discussing the clinical data and the scientific proposition of this product. Now, you only get those insights from working with people who kind of understand that. And it's our understanding knowing that the scientific proposition, it's the seniors commercialization expertise saying, ah, oh, we get it. So we should have MSLs in the field as soon as they're able to start using this published data and the clinical data to get the key opinion leaders, formulary committees, and for us other people aware that this product's coming, obviously without promoting it per se, but just talking about the scientific clinical development proposition. So for me, that's a really good example where, you know, you work with people that have done it before and maybe not only done it before once, but have done it before 10 times. And the vaccine world, once you have the approval, you then have to get it out to everyone, right? Right. It's HCPs at every level. It's the very best heptologists in North America, the true, true global key opinion leaders, right down to the doctor who sees people in his surgery and says to them, oh, by the way, the ACRP recommendations on vaccination against hepatitis B used to be on a risk basis, which meant that actually individuals in the surgery had to identify them as being high-risk individuals which was always a difficult discussion to be had. But in uh, the first quarter of this year, the HCIP moved to a universal adult recommendation. All adults between the ages of 19 and 59 should be vaccinated against hepatitis B. Such is the contagious nature of this, such is the, the health burden. And that was a really important step because it shifted the emphasis from the individual to the clinician. So the clinician now is really uh, empowered to say to individuals, if you haven't been vaccinated, even if you think you have, but you've forgotten about it, you should get vaccinated. That happened three months before we launched this product. And that's a great example of the agility of this commercial relationship. Because as soon as that happened, all of the trainers, all of the educators who are part of our team immediately had to change a lot of our promotional materials, had to change a lot of our positioning of the product, and also, you know, had to train the sales representatives 
and the regional account, national account managers, government account managers to say, hey, we thought we were launching into a risk-based market, but now we're launching into this universal adult recommendation. So what is different about, you know, the, the vaccine world? The vaccine world is, you know, one that is inherently very scientific. And it's one where the commercial challenges are completely different in that you're actually, you know, using a very potent drug, which you put into an otherwise healthy person to stop getting sick. That is very different to saying, look, my asthma inhaler is better than their asthma inhaler because mine reduces your son's coughing and choking by 30% of the time. I mean, most people can understand that. It's an acute situation. Prophylactic vaccination is very different. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's a great story. And the word that was going through our mind as you're describing that is science. And Lee, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but it very much feels like what you've got right here is not getting, for want of a better word, too lost in the process of, of developing and commercialising the vaccine and really focusing on the science and getting that story right. Yeah, I agree. I have nothing to add to what Jeff said. I think you nailed it. Uh, it it's, um, you know, once you make that scientific argument, there and make that case, uh, then then you can start to convert HCPs and patients over to to the drug and the benefits of the group. I think the only probable thing that I would add to it is just the, the idea of using that case to get a reimbursement as well, right? Because when when people have access to the to the product, they the, the HCP needs to know that that product can be paid for and that they're going to get reimbursed and all of that as well. So, but but if, without that scientific argument, you won't get. <laughs> The, the reimbursement that you need anyway. So it all goes back to the science and, 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 you, and making that case as to why, especially when you're not the first to market. And, sure. and there is established product out there that you're competing with. You have to make differentiation kind of critical there, but it has to be differentiated on the science. But then once you get that, then, then the rest of it can be pulled. Yeah. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's not all been plain sailing as, as much as you can share and want to share. Any sort of big challenges you've had to overcome or a moment where you've gone, oh my goodness, we've really got to do something here and get this right? Oh, Jeff, if you wanted to weigh in, I think the, the getting that reimbursement in place and getting that up to speed and getting the product into the, into the supply chain and all of that, I think has probably been, you know, the the, the most difficult thing to uh, that we we faced. I think it's a it's a great product, got to get it out there and, and get it available. You know, and, and you know that that probably took a little um, longer, had a little bit more longer tail to it than than we you know wanted it to up front, Jeff. I don't know what your thoughts on there but i think we're, we're largely past yeah no, i think uh and again this is where experience counts right you know we're learning together um you know lee and i probably have been involved in you know a dozen product launches each pre-pandemic right what you have to learn for the first time is that the world post-pandemic is very different and you have to use your pre-pandemic experience to try and find our way in this new world and, you know, I'll just give you one very real practical example of we're trying to push, 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 you know, the major wholesalers to get our product, you know, signed up, you know, get it in the distribution system, get all the EDI testing done, everything else. And, you know, bluntly, they've never said it as crudely as this, but bluntly, it's like, hey, Jeff, we understand your product's been approved. Yes, we do want to stop your product. Yes, we do want to get it into supply chain and out to HCP. But at the same time that you've just, you know, you want to deliver us 5,000 cartons of your product, 
we've just got 5 million doses yeah. of, you know, a bivalent Pfizer or Moderna vaccine that we need to ship out for boosters in the next four weeks. And that's just a, it's a very practical and very real problem. But, you know, they're, they're obviously making money and getting paid on that business and same as they are on ours. But having said that, there's a real operational urgency about getting boosters into the arms of the American population, particularly those who are at risk with comorbidity. So, you know, we're kind of learning, learning and finding our way through this. But having the experience in across the broad team is really what you get you to the end. And, you know, never once have I seen anyone in either one of our teams just throw up their hands and say, Jeff, this is impossible. I don't know what to do. <laughs> because people have been in this business, you know, on average, people across our teams have been in this business for like 15 years or something. And so it's like, oh, I know what to do. I've got relationships. Yeah. I've got a Rolodex. I'll make a telephone call. I get on a plane and go and visit the whole center in Chicago and explain to them why this is really important. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, getting getting through those sort of pandemic-related supply chain operational issues um, has has been a challenge. Yeah, and, and that kind of um, optimism and creativity, if I can label it that way, I think it's been a key ingredient in the past two years with COVID because, it, as you've outlined, it has disrupted things. Um, it also creates opportunities. And I know, Jeff, you know, you're, you're also investing in, in some uh, potential COVID assets as well. But it sounds like you've found a way to sort of keep the focus and navigate around those challenges without getting too, too bogged down by them. And um, let's just look ahead, you know, because I'd love to sort of hear your thoughts on where you see the story going from here. And I say that cautiously because we all know the world of drug development and commercialization is notoriously unpredictable. But you know, if, if we take an optimistic approach to it, where do you see things heading in the next two to three years? And, and where would you like to be? Jeff, perhaps you'd like to comment on this first. Yeah, I mean, for me, as Lee said earlier, you know, it's really important that we build this sort of inextricably linked and, and mutually invested model with a vision. And for me, the most important part of that vision is not saying, okay, Lee, I'm going to be knocking on your door in a year's time because I want to bring those 80 people that you've got dedicated to pre-Hefrio in-house. That's that's not, and it's not here. We, you know, we envisage building out this model, not only being successful with pre-Hefrio, but add, adding other products to that. Now, of course, you know, GBM, touch wood, if we're successful, that is a very different commercialization challenge. But again, it's inherently scientific. And so, you know, it is fantastic when I look at the LinkedIn pages of some of the senior, well, our MSLs who are primarily employed by seniors saying, you know, seniors on behalf of VBI. People sending me LinkedIn messages saying, really excited about GBM, really can't wait to start telling the story. So they really are emotionally and sort of psychologically invested in thinking, okay, we're excited doing pre-hebrio, but, you know, maybe GBM's two years down the line. So that for us is really important to, to, to work with people, as I say, that are emotionally, psychologically, and financially invested in making this partnership work. Where do I see VBI in two to three years' time? You know, we have a number of exciting candidates that we haven't announced clinically. Um, those candidates going into early phase one development. We have an exciting uh, COVID-19 pipeline 
Um, very shortly, we hope to be kicking off the first clinical study of a true pan-coronavirus candidate, um, which uh, will not only protect against all of the currently known variants of concern, but potentially against novel and new coronaviruses that haven't made the human-to-human leap. So, you know, I really, really want to carry on focusing on building out the pipeline to bring forward, you know, opportunities to solve these significant unmet medical needs. And in doing so, I want to know that, you know, our commercialization processes are in safe, experienced, compliant hands. Um, and, you know, that is, that's not a hygiene factor. That's not something I ever would ever take for granted. And, you know, I'm going to carry on spending 30, 35% of my time on. But, you know, I know that it's in the hands of experienced people. So that, you know, for me is the vision. That's great. Thanks, Jeff. And Lee, I'm guessing you're very aligned with, with Jeff and where VBI wants to go. But I guess looking beyond that in terms of what else that means for you and the teams at Cineops, what are you excited about the next few years? Yeah, I, I think it gets back to this sort of alternative approach to market uh, that we talked about before. It, it, it's this binary choice, of, you know, build it in-house or, you know, license it away. I, I think more and more that is becoming a three choice um, conversation. And, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're very well positioned to, to continue to do things with BBI, like we've talked about, but uh, with, with, with others as well, we have others that we're doing it with, but I think that that market will continue to evolve a, a bit. We'll evolve along with it. I, I think, you know, we're, we're self-aware uh, as to places where we, we want to add or develop further capabilities things that, you know, talent that we, we need to acquire to really make that sing the way we want it to. But it's pretty exciting because I, I think, you know, you, you all get in, you get into this business, I think, for two for two reasons. One, obviously, the patients, unmet need and, and, and solving for that and making the world a better place. But, but the second part of it is, can you can you look back at the end of your career and say, I, I contributed something new to the way that the business operates and, and a, a better way to bring products to market or a better way to help clients, uh, customers commercialize their assets in, in a way that, you know, mitigates their risk or gives them different benefits. So I think there's a real opportunity to, to look back personally, um, I would say, you know, 10 years from now and, and say, you know, we really were at the forefront of something new, a new way of doing this that's no longer new. And it, it's just an accepted way of doing it. That's pretty exciting, right? So if you've helped patients along the way and, and you've contributed to sort of the way that the industry uh, operates and, and brings products to market in a, in a more efficient and effective way. That, that's something to, to to really hang your hat on. And I think there's a real opportunity for for that to happen. You know, it's um, there's a lot of capital that's been put into this industry along the way that, that has gone south, right? And, and if, in the end, if you think you play this thing out a little bit, I think there's a way for, you know, people to be more confident in the way they invest, that there's risk mitigation strategies there, there's investment models. That makes sense. Routes to market that use that capital more efficiently to get the, the right products in the right hands. That's pretty exciting. So that that's kind of our forward view of the world. You know, our relationship with people like BBI are critical for that to happen because they're proof points, right? It's one thing to talk about it in, in a theoretical way. It's another way to point to it and say that's what that's that's what it looks like when you do it the right way. Yeah, and it's it's clear from our discussion today that that you know the partnership is underpinned by that shared vision. That, that shared trust, I guess, in terms of what you're doing. So I thought it might be quite nice to end with a, a bit more fun question, perhaps, which hopefully doesn't destroy the partnership. <laughs> if you were to describe each other in just one word, 
what that one word would be. And, and Lee, perhaps I can come to you first on this one. Uh, yeah, I would describe Jeff as passionate. He's very passionate about the science and about getting that that science pulled through to the patient and solving for unmet needs. And that passion manifests itself in a in a lot of a lot of different ways. I would also we could pick two. I'll bend the rules a bit. I would say bold. I think just bold enough to to be willing to do that in a different way and, and be non traditional in his approach to it. And I think if when you put passion and boldness together, you get get a pretty good outcome. That's great. And Jeff, what's your one word or two words if you want to bend the rules as well? <laughs> well, I can think of lots of words to describe Lee. But <laughs> if uh, if I'll play by the rules, first of all, I would say invested. Um, and I've said it a few times looking back on the last 40 minutes or so. I think, you know, professional, psychological, emotional, and, you know, from a senior's perspective, capital financial invested is the word I use. I I know that Lee is very senior in the organization. Um, and you asked earlier about big pharma versus small biotech or emerging biotech. You know, Lee is extremely senior in the organization. I know I can pick up the phone anytime and speak to him. And I know he spends a lot of time thinking about VBI when I'm not on the phone. So I would say invested. That's great. That's great. Well, look, you know, from my perspective, fascinating hearing you talk about your story. And I think a really good reminder, I mean, the, the science is great and obviously wish you both the best of luck, because if, if you win, then lots of patients win big time with this. So it's great hearing that story, but it's a good reminder for me that it's, yes, it is about capabilities and expertise, but that relationship and the way you operate together, the way you interact, that's key in, in business wherever you are. And it's been great hearing that side of the story today. So I just want to finish by saying, you know, Jeff, Lee, thanks very much for joining me on this podcast. It's been great to hear your story. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, ACAST, Stitcher and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily or weekly email pharmaceutical news and analysis bulletins. And of course, follow us on Twitter where we are Pharma Forum. Pharma Forum.